All right, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Uh, God, we're excited to sit before your word. Uh, God, to see what you have in store for us. God, we're grateful for your word. Uh, and God, most of all, we're grateful for you that you speak. Uh, God, that you involve yourself in the lives of your creation, that you're in every single detail. And uh, God, tonight as we open your word and our desire, of course, is to experience more of you and to be, uh, God, in your presence, we pray that you'd give us clarity on tonight, that you'd give us honesty uh, about the things that are true about ourselves and sometimes how we disconnect between the things that we think and the passions that drive our hearts. And uh, God, and sometimes we're very uh, secretive about the reality that we are incapable of doing certain things. And so, God, tonight, would you help us to be open uh, to what you have for us? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us. God, that you would convict us and that you'd help us to see the things that you have for us. God, give us courage to change for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, yeah, so we've been talking about the experience of God and that connection between the mind and the heart. And so as we think about that, as we think about what that looks like, we've talked about that over the last few weeks uh, and so the first question you'll notice on your handout is, when is the last time you failed? What a great start, huh? Thinking about failure. When is the last time that you failed? We often don't want to think about failure, right? We try to uh, exclude failure from our memory bank. We don't want that to be part of the things that we dwell on. And so I want you to think about that. When is the last time that you didn't get what you wanted? When is the last time that you didn't get your way or that you did not succeed? So for some of you, you know, you, you, you're thinking about maybe a uh, promotion that you went for. Maybe you're thinking about uh, maybe years ago you're thinking about something that happened. Maybe it was earlier this afternoon. I don't know. Maybe you failed to win the race at the red light against some random stranger on 49 today. I don't know. Uh, but when we think about failure, we often try to remove failure, you know, because when we put ourselves out there and we experience the crushing blow of defeat, it is something that we don't want to have anything to do with, right? We want to exclude that. Well, as we've talked about this disconnect between leading with our minds or following Jesus with our hearts, we often never allow ourselves to be in a position of failure, so if you're in here tonight and you say, well, I'm not sure, that's a great question. I don't know when the last time was that I failed. You're in denial. You're in denial, right? And so what's happening is you have conditioned your brain. Remember, this is cognitive versus passions. You've conditioned your brain to not quantify or identify failure in your life or not allowed yourself to do it. So we guard against failure. We try to keep it from never happening, right? We do. And, and depending on your personality type, uh, you may try harder for failure not to be the case than others. You see, for me, uh, there's never been a time when I did not finish a marathon. I have never started a marathon and not finished a marathon, ever. That has never happened for me. And that is because I've never signed up for a marathon. <laughs> See how that works? Right? And so when you think about my marathon example, many of, maybe all of you can say, I can say that too. I've never not completed a marathon that I signed up for because you never signed up for a marathon. And so what happens in our life is oftentimes we never put ourselves out to try to accomplish things 
you know, we could talk about this both socially, we could talk about this uh, both uh, in our vocation, but we could, you know, certainly we're mentioning this spiritually. And so we never put ourselves out far enough to experience failure. Now, we could spend the rest of tonight talking about just one area of our lives, if that's true, and that's in evangelism, right? That we don't share our faith oftentimes because of fear of rejection. And so we don't put ourselves out there. And so for some of you, you would say, well, you know what? It's been a long time since I failed, which means that you're not trying very hard. At least it's very hard for you to admit that to be true. So next blank says, what if I told you to, tonight that admitting failure was the only way to succeed? What if I told you that admitting failure was the only way to succeed? Now, you know, commercial here, I'm going to say next blank every time we come to a blank because as often as the case, electronics aren't cooperating. And so we, Melanie's the IT person tonight. Uh, and so what if that's the case? What if never admitting failure, what if admitting it rather is the key to success? In admitting the fact that, you know what, you didn't make it. Now think about um, you know, I'm a basketball fan, so I know the story very well of Michael Jordan. So I grew up wanting to be like Mike, you know, the McDonald's and the Wheaties commercials and learning all the, you know, moves that Michael Jordan did. And if you study the life of Michael Jordan, well, you know, it's not that, you know, he didn't have the path LeBron James had, right? He, he wasn't six foot eight and recruited in 10th grade. As a matter of fact, I think it was ninth or 10th grade, I think it was ninth grade, he was cut from the team. His number was 23 because his brother was 45, so the story goes, and he thought he was half as good as his brother. And so we hear stories like that, and then we, you know, we see the result of the career of Michael Jordan and say, hey, you know, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. But it didn't start out that way, and so there were times when he failed. You know, there were uh, places that didn't recruit him. You know, there's a letter that's circulating now because Coach K at Duke is uh, – uh, retiring, and he had written a letter to Michael Jordan in the early 80s, and so he obviously did not go to Duke. He went to North Carolina, and so we see all of these failures of great people, you know, great examples of accomplishments, I guess you'd say, but it didn't always start that way. So what if Michael Jordan never put himself out there to fail? What if he never admitted failure, and it was the coach's fault in ninth grade, and he never pursued past that failure. Well, I think a lot of people live in that zone. Either they don't identify failure in their life, or they don't try to overcome when they admit that they failed. So again, what if success starts with admitting failure? Have you ever noticed that this is fascinating? Have you ever noticed that the Bible is full of people who failed? Right? Wouldn't you think if God was communicating to us that He would say, Here's all of the ways that perfect people have lived, emulate them, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, a perfectionist, certainly a legalist would say, that makes a lot of sense. That's what the Bible should be. And yet page after page after page is what? It is full of people who didn't have their act together, who made mistakes, who failed, who did the wrong thing. I mean, think about it. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve failed, in many ways, but they failed ultimately in perfection. Think about Moses. Moses failed to obey God's commands. Now, this is just a few examples. David failed to keep his eyes on God, and instead he ended up committing adultery and murder. 
most of the, uh, if not all of the prophets, and especially, you know, we see minor and major prophets in the Old Testament, uh, most if not all of them failed to redirect the nations in which God called them to redirect. All, A-L-L, all of the disciples turned their back on Jesus, every one of them. They failed. Many other examples of that, and yet in their failures, it was the failure that catapulted them to the top of the usable list, right? That these are the people that God can use. It's not the perfect. It's not the most outstanding. We saw how that worked with the nation of Israel. They saw Saul, who was taller than everyone else, and he was handsome, and they said, he's our guy, and well, that didn't work out very well. And so when we look at what God uses and how God uses us, might I suggest to us tonight that it's not the perfect, it's not those that have their act together, it's not those who have things figured out, but it's those that are willing to admit that they failed. You see, when we embrace this reality, the reality that the beauty of the gospel is most magnified in our inabilities, this is when we're able to operate to our fullest extent. That God can use anything. That God can use the person who can't speak like Moses says. Or he can use the one who's willing to become even more undignified as David said. Right? That God can use anybody despite all of our failures. You see, it's not failure that stops people. It's not failure. Most people never go far enough to fail. Think about that. That we attempt certain things, but most of the time we only attempt things in which we will be successful. And so that's all cognitive. That's all from the mind. And so the only thing that we exert energy for and to are the things in which in our minds that we've almost guaranteed our success to accomplish. But what if that is not the way that God intends for us to live? You see, again, it's not failure that stops people. Most people don't go that far. It is the fear of failure, next blank on your handout, that stops people. It is the fear of failure. Is that you're afraid that your neighbor who is not a gospel follower will not receive your invitation. You're afraid that your coworker will not receive your invitation. You're afraid that, you know, someone won't receive your act of kindness. You're afraid that the ministry that God's calling you to be involved in, that you're not good enough or that you're not equipped enough or that you don't have enough money to go on a mission trip or fill in the blank, whatever it may be. And so it is not failure itself. It's not that you said, yes, God, I'll go on mission for you, and I know it's $1,600 to go to Brazil, but I was only able to raise 1000 and I failed, and I can't go. Or you say, God, I want to go over and talk to my neighbor, and I went over there and I talked to them, and, you know, they received the gospel, or they slammed the door in my face, or, you know, whatever, you know, you may imagine in your mind. It is the fear of those things happening that prevent you from doing those things. It is not actually failure itself that kept you from doing it. Culturally, most people live by the motto, just do it, right? You've seen it. Maybe you're wearing the swoosh mark. You know, Nike has uh, made the slogan their motto. See, what this just do it motto is the lie that has been promoted since the beginning of time. As a matter of fact, if we rewind to Genesis and we wrote it in today's lingo, when Eve questioned the serpent about, are you sure that God, you know, this is what God said Basically, what the serpent said to Adam and Eve was, just do it. 
Just do it. And we're actually going to look at that exact verse here in a few minutes. But culturally, that's been, been the motto. It is the lie that's been promoted from the beginning. Now, it's not just an Nike slogan. Ultimately, what just do it means for our culture is the ability to confidently take matters into our own hands. Right? Have you noticed that? That the confidence of the world is very high? I mean, we have, unfortunately, a war right now because of what? Because of one person had enough confidence to believe that they could accomplish something. But again, we only do things that we think we have success that's guaranteed. And so we're not going to put ourselves out there and admit failure. Failure would be the absolute worst thing that we think could happen. And it is the fear of that that prevents us from doing it. And so we only exist or we only operate in things to which we confidently believe that we can do. And we believe and rely upon ourselves to accomplish that. Said another way, when is the last time that you attempted something that would only be accomplished if God showed up? Right? So we don't put ourselves in those positions because what if God doesn't show up? What will I look like? How will I make God look if I do that? Is this exuding of confidence, but more specific, this self-reliance? That I believe that I can do this and I will accomplish this. And it is a me society that we live in. It is the lie that we believe somehow, some way that we could be the same as God. To which you say, no, I would never do that. I don't believe that I'm the same as God. But do we? You see, we sing songs, you know, I grew up singing a song, there is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. There is none like you, right? And yet often our lives don't reflect that reality. Do we live our lives based on the declaration that there is none like God? Right? I mean, think about it. Your heart, my heart, our hearts sing with desire when we hear and grasp the reality of the greatness of God. As much as we can understand that, is it not true that when God is most magnified in your life, when whatever the scenario may be, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a sermon, you know, maybe it's an encouraging word, whatever it may be, but when you see God as big as you've ever seen God, or when you're reminded of God as big as God is, it is in those moments in which your heart resonates the most. Is that not true? Right? And so it's in those moments that we gravitate towards that. So, and the, the reason for that is our heart so desires, our heart so desires to, to say or to live out that reality and to exist in that reality. But our mind says, now wait a minute, you can't live in la la land, right? And so that's what we say. And so our minds lead us back into reason and logic. And we stay away from God can do anything. And with God, all things are possible. We do. We, we do that. It's true. But our heart really, really desires that. And so, again, if you've ever been in that moment, and hopefully that's true for many of you, that you see God as magnified as He's ever been in your life, and the way that your heart responds to that, that's where your heart wants to reside. That's where God wants your heart to reside. Because when God is most magnified, He is most glorified, right? And so our heart sings with the desire. And so the greatness of God, the greatness of God is so far separated from me and from you. It is so 
far away from us. The next blank in your handout says God has no opposite because the opposite of God is nothing. Right? We would say, you know, we've said this many times for years around here, which is 100% true, but the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. It is indifference. So we would say the opposite of God is, and you would say, Satan. Most people would. But that's not true because they're not equals. The opposite of Satan would be uh, an angel that actually follows God because Satan is an angel, a fallen one nonetheless. But that would be the opposite of him. The opposite of God is nothing because there is no rival. There is no opposite of God. We talked about this in week one and also the last series of Zephaniah. Do you realize who the one in which you and I are to depend upon is? Do you realize who he is? Have you sat in awe and wonder of who God is? In your prayer time, let me encourage you, if instead, maybe just once this week, that instead of asking God for things, that you declared the realities of who He is and only those things, God, you are good. God, you are kind. God, you are loving. God, you are forgiving. And you exalted God in prayer. You would find yourself in an experience with God in which your heart so resonated and which your mind would maybe even be detached from because God said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart first. And so what would happen is that God would become more magnified in your life, which would elevate Him in your heart. You see, I think oftentimes we cognitively rationalize God to the point to where we diminish the greatness of who He is because we can't understand Him. And so what we do is we diminish him to where we can't understand him. Next blank is it is as simple for him to create a billion galaxies as it is a blade of grass. And that still doesn't communicate his greatness. The greatness of God. You see, when we think about the greatness of God, do we consider failure? Because if God can do anything, and with God all things are possible, is failure possible? Right? Think of kids. Okay? Easiest example. Think of children. And the younger they are, the more reckless abandon they have. And they'll do anything. Right? They'll do anything. And so they'll, they'll run into danger with no regard for danger. And why is that? Because, number one, they're not thinking about it. And, number two, they know you're right there with them. And so failure is not an option. They'll run downstairs at one years of age because 25 stairs means nothing to a one-year-old. That's why they make baby gates, right? It means nothing to a one-year-old. And it's because they have no fear because they believe and they trust and they know that they're loved enough to where they can try anything. And if they fall down without, think of a child walking for the first time. Do you think they're like, I really don't feel like trying anymore today. I'm just so embarrassed that I fell on my diaper 73 times this morning. No. They're up and trying again over and over and over. And that one moment, that one step of success, all of a sudden we're videoing it and we're telling everyone, and right? It's the greatest thing. And they just took one step. And they're not, they're not concerned with, yeah, but what about those other 87 times that I fell down? Because they love and they trust and they believe and they're not afraid to fail. You see, that's how we should be with our Heavenly Father. Last week, Pastor Tony talked about the sovereignty of God. 
Of course, sovereignty refers to God's authority of His reign, that He's in control of all things, that all things work according to His plan and purpose, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And so, as we think about God's supremacy, you know, His uh, omnipotence over all things, that's His power to accomplish those things. And so, this reality that God is omnipotent, He's all-powerful, that He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, that reality should create within us the ability to be comfortable with our vulnerability. That we're, we're vulnerable. That we're okay with being vulnerable. But we're not. You see, we ought to be willing to declare our dependence upon God. And the way that we do that is the way that we live. It's not just in the words that we say, because that's often cognitive. The next blank is the desire to be free from the limits of dependence is what broke the world. The desire to be free from the limits of dependence is what broke the world. And if you sat and thought about it long enough in your own life, the desire to be free from the limits of dependence in our lives is what often prevents us from being who God wants us to be. In Genesis 3, 5, the Bible says, For God knows that when you eat of it, the enemy is telling Eve here, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what he was doing is he was testing the limits of dependence. You see, our, our dependence upon God is what we're going to talk about tonight if you haven't figured it out. And what does that look like for us? Are we, are, are we in a, a vulnerable position? Are we willing to be vulnerable enough to declare our dependence upon God in which failure is an option and probably a reality, but it's irrelevant because of who we are serving and who we are pursuing? Are we willing to say those things? You see, often our dependence is derailed in life. And, and I want to suggest this a couple of things to you tonight that uh, are reasons for that. And it's certainly not all-inclusive, but I want to suggest a couple of reasons why our dependence is often derailed. Well, the first one you'll see on your handout is misplaced desires. Misplaced desires. Now, whatever age you are, rewind in your mind 10 years ago. Are you where you thought you would be today, 10 years ago? Are you where you wanted to be 10 years ago? Right? Misplaced desires. We have these desires in our heart. I, I think of Penny and, and uh, you know, in the last 10 years, look at all that's changed for y'all. You lived in different states and different places, and God's led you different directions. You know, in our lives, God moves us. You know, it'll be 10 years that I've lived on the coast in September. And you think, well, 10 years ago, what did that look like? Well, you know, what is your desire for that? You see, when we think about dependence upon God, often we misplace our desires, and our desires cause us to not depend upon God. You see, when we think about desires and we think about expectations, the difference between the two is not just what you hope for. So if you say, well, I desire, we'll dig in a little bit in a minute, but if we say, I desire for something, I des that means I want it to happen. Now, if it doesn't happen, eh, you know, but I want it to happen. You know, I have desires. I want to go to Golden Corral. Has anybody been since they've opened? Is it good? I want to go to Golden Corral. Uh, I want to go there, right? It's a desire. 
But, you know, if I don't go, well, it doesn't really matter. But when we have expectations, well, expectations, we expect to meet those. That's why they're called expectations, right? And so we say, uh, with expectations, well, that's, that's a different ballgame. You know, that's what they've started to call in the corporate world. You have expectations, and you've got to meet your expectations. And so if you're doing a good job, well, you're meeting expectations or, or you're exceeding expectations. That's how the corporate world coins that today. And so when we think about these misplaced desires, well, they're different than expectations. It is when our desire becomes a demand that what we hope for will happen. You see, desires become problematic for us when we begin to demand our hope. Think about this think about it this way. Are there things that you hope or you want God to do? Misplaced desires are when we demand that God do those things. And we say, God, well, I mean, you did this for somebody else. Why wouldn't you do this for me? And so we have these desires that we want, and we, we think we impose them on God, and they become more than a desire, they become a demand. You see, the difference is most clear when what we hope for, we don't get. And so in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to a family. Isaac and Rebekah are married. They had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And before Jacob and Esau were even born, you're familiar with the story, God said this. Two nations, he's telling, uh, he's telling Rebekah this. He says, two nations are in your womb, Genesis 25, 23, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So before Jacob and Esau are born, God tells her, hey, one's going to be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger, which is the opposite of culture there. Okay, and so expectations are different there, all right, which we'll get to in a second. And so the older shall serve the younger. So Jacob and Esau are born. Jacob is the younger, Esau is the older. Well, that didn't sit very well with Jacob. Jacob didn't like being number two. Jacob wanted to be number one, and he wanted to dethrone his brother as the oldest in line for his father's blessings. And so what he decided to do for the sake of time tonight, you can go back and read, he took matters into his own hands. And so he deceived and tricked, and he wanted to do things his way. He didn't like being in second place. He wanted to be in first place. Very few people are okay with being in second place. You see, when we talk about failure, let's say we ran a marathon and I got second in a marathon, well, I would be upset about that because I would want to get first place. But most people aren't okay with second place, right? We think about second place and we say, well, no, that, that's worse than first. Others of you are like, well, I just finished the marathon. I mean, that's 26-something miles. That's pretty good. Most people aren't okay with, you see, Jacob was one of those people. God had promised Jacob blessings beyond measure. The Bible says in chapter 28, if you fast forward a little bit, he says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you uh, to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall be the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until uh, I have done what I have promised you. Those are some incredible blessings, right? I mean, what could you not do if God told you that? Nothing. 
Right? I mean, you can do anything. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to expand your family uh, as, as much as the dust on the earth. Uh, wherever you go, I'm with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. I mean, those are fantastic promises. But you see, Jacob, even after hearing all of these things from God, he's like, well, you know, that sounds pretty good, but I'm still number two, God, and so I'm going to fix that. And so he went on a journey to fix things, and he deceived his brother. And so Jacob never fully trusted God for this promise to come to pass. What Jacob did is he decided if he was ever to receive a blessing in life, he would have to get it himself. Right? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Hey, you got to look out for number one. No one's going to look out for you. If you're going to get it, you got to get it yourself. And so what Jacob decided is, I've got to make I've got to make my life. I've got to set my course. I can't wait for God to fulfill his promises, even though he's told me that he will. I've got to get it myself. And so through the lens of history, we learn that Jacob did, in fact, end up getting exactly what he set out to get. He got everything he wanted. He tricked Esau into giving him the first birthright. He wanted it. You see, so often in our lives, we strive for blessings from God on our time and in our terms. Now, I've been guilty of this, so, you know, this, this could be my confession, but I would imagine I'm probably not alone, right? That, that we want the blessings from God, and we know what God's promised us. We know what Scripture tells us, but We've decided that, well, you know, God, I actually have a time frame for that. I've got a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or whatever that may be. And not only do I have the timing of it that I need you to fulfill, but I also have the terms and the limits and conditions, right? And so what we do is we say, God, we want you to bless us, but God, we want you to do it on our time and the way we want you to do it, our terms and conditions, right? And so we set forth these things that we want God to do in our life. All the while, God has promised to fight our battles, but we insist on pursuing good for ourselves based on our own desires and expectations. Now, we say, God, I want you to do it on my terms because I'm going to define what good is. You've promised to fight battles for me. You've promised to go before me, God, but I've got desires, God. I've got expectations, I've got things I need you to do for me. And so Jacob had these desires. He had these expectations. And when his, his desires were misplaced and he wanted to be number one, he couldn't do anything but focus on being number one. He was so consumed with that in his life. You see, what God's plan was for Jacob was to use the vulnerability of the younger son to lead him to be the father of a great nation. Think about that story in the nation or the heritage of Israel. That not the firstborn, but the younger child would be the leader of a nation. That was unheard of at the time. The firstborn received all of the blessings. And yet what God was saying is that I can use anyone, that I can use second place, that I can use those that are considered, quote, failures in society. I can take them and make them into something great as long as they depend upon me. But what happened in Jacob's life is Jacob said, no, God, I have my desires, and my desires supplant your desires for me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pursue what I think is best 
for me. Example, America, right? You look around and see all of the cultural norms, quote, in our world today, and this is what America has done is said, God, we know what's best for us, and we know how to pursue what's good for us, and instead of waiting for you to move and act, we want to do what we think is best for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So if you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I am one ugly dude, there's hope for you, right? If you look, if you look at your life and say, I have no talent, I can't speak or I can't present or I can't whatever, fill in the blank. There's hope for you because what that means is if God can take someone who can't and and use them into someone who did, imagine the glory that God gets, right? And then you see Saul, first uh, king of Israel, who thought he could, and he took matters into his own hands in so many different ways, and yet he ended up, what, not being the king of Israel because he thought he could do it on his own strength and not depending upon God, and so the Bible teaches us, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish to shame the wise. You see, God, uh, Jacob desired God to do what he wanted on his timing. It's our vulnerability that makes us available to God. Our vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is not a word that we like to talk about, and we definitely don't like to operate in being vulnerable because we always relate that to being negative. And it really is a trust issue. It really is, and we we won't dig too deep into that, but it is a trust issue in being vulnerable. You see, vulnerability is what makes us available to God. Failure has a way of exposing our vulnerabilities. It's just like an apology. When you say, I'm sorry, you're admitting failure. And when is the last time somebody said, I'm sorry to you? We just, people don't do that because they're admitting failure. You see, look, this is how most of us approach it. We say, God, you know, I want you to work in my life. I want you to help me. And so we say, here's what I have, God. I'm going to bring this to the table. Here's all the work that I've done. Here's all the preparation that I've done. Here's everything that I think I'm good at. Here's how I think things are going to work out. And so we bring something to the table. And we think, God, I brought this little bit of strength that I've got. I've got this dependence, this little bit of dependence on me, but I don't have quite enough to finish the task, or I don't have enough, I think, to finish the task. And so what I need you to do is I need you to add some of your power to my energy, and then we can make this thing happen. And so we go in with this, like, codependency thing that I'm depending on myself, but I'm also going to depend upon God, but primarily because I don't have the ability to complete it, And so we say, God, I'm bringing a little bit of me to the table, but I'm going to need you to bring the rest of your power and complete this. Well, that is the wrong way to approach dependency upon God. You see, your weakness appears when you say that you can do nothing. This is what Scripture talks about when Scripture talks about the word weakness. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do a little bit. Apart from me, you can do a few things. No, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. 
In and of ourselves, we don't have the ability to accomplish anything apart from Jesus. And so when we think about this, Martin Luther said it the best. He said, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. As long as we're nothing. But when we keep coming to the table and we say, God, I've got a little bit of uh, this talent. God, and I, you know, we're talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. And Pastor Tony will be talking about that this Sunday. And when we think about, God, what have you gifted me with? God, what is it that you want me to be a part of the kingdom with? We can't approach that with saying, God, here's what I have, and this is what I think I'm really good at, and this is my spiritual gift inventory, and God, I want to be good at this part, and I just can't quite complete it, so I'm going to need you to add some of your supernatural power to it, and if you take this talent that I have and your supernatural power, boy, we can get things done, God. That is not dependence. That is not weakness. That is not vulnerability. That is arrogance. That is pride. That is self-reliance. We've got to come to God and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? God, I don't know what it is that you see that's good in me, but God, I'm willing for you to use whatever you see that's good in me. Right? Moses said, God, I can't speak. God said, no problem. I'll send Aaron with you. Right? God has a solution for everything. But when we show up in the moment and we're not willing to admit failure by saying that we bring something to the table, the reality is there is none righteous, no, not one. That excludes everybody, by the way. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet, we often so walk around in pride and arrogance and think, you know what? God's really using me or God's really working in my life or God's really doing this. And you had nothing to do with it. It was all God. In some random event, he chose you out of his love, not because you were good, because he's good. Right? When you think about what's happening in, in Europe today, in Ukraine and everything, did you have anything to do with being born in the United States? No. Nothing. You had nothing to do with that. And yet, here you are, a citizen of the United States of America. That's the goodness of God. Right? It could be totally different. You could have been born in a culture that was uh, based on some other world religion, and the only thing you ever knew growing up was whatever that your culture taught you. But you didn't. You were born in a culture that exposed you to the reality of who, of who Jesus is, and you responded to that. That's what God did. You didn't have anything to do with that. If you just take those two fundamental things, everything else falls into line. I didn't have anything to do with being born here, and I didn't have anything to do with me uh, finding Jesus. He found me. Then everything else is okay. How do I know that? Well, Matthew 6, says it. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all, A-L-L, these things will be added unto you. Right? And so when we think about this bringing our weakness to the table, we can't show up with a bag full of things and say, God, I got a few things I think you could use. But it's that we show up and say, God, I don't have anything, but I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. It's just like the people with, that you see on the news with Ukraine that say, hey, I'm, not, I'm a, an athlete or I'm a musician or whatever, but that's my country, and I don't have any training, but I'm going to show up and fight, right? I mean, that's, that, you see some of these stories of people saying, I just want to be a part of what's happening. Isn't that what we ought to be like? As believers, we say, God, I just want to be a part of whatever you're doing. 
And I'm not really good at this, or I'm not really good at that, but I I just want to follow you. And so instead of our desires being to build our kingdom or to elevate our status, that we would say, God, if no one knows that I was a part of this, but you get the glory, I'm good with that. Notice none of the Pharisees were disciples. None of them. The smartest, the brightest, the, you know, the elite of society, right? None of them were disciples. None of them. Zero. Jesus wasn't looking for the smartest, the best well-known, the top of the class, the valedictorians, the, the fastest runners, the most physically fit. No, Jesus was looking for one thing, the ability to admit weakness. The ability to admit weakness. Moses felt he couldn't speak. David felt he couldn't lead. Job felt he wasn't worthy. Matthew got bogged down in the details. John the Baptist was weird. Paul traveled the wrong path of life for the larger part of his young life. And yet, God used them. In their weakness, God used them. You know, Paul said, when I am weak, you are strong. Weakness is not a very popular word in today's culture. If you listed the most desired qualities in a person, weakness is not top of the list. But it is through our weakness that our dependence upon God becomes most evident. It's through our weakness that our dependence upon God becomes most evident. And so as we think about misplaced desires, what what we ought to do is we ought to say, God, I want to embrace my weaknesses. Because when we embrace our weaknesses, that's the very place where God gets the most glory. That we say, God, I can't, but I believe that you can, so I will. Isn't that what Mary said? Hey, like, I don't know how this is going to happen. This whole, you know, birth thing is going on that you're talking about. But okay, I'm in, right? And so we say, God, I don't know how you're going to do these things. I don't know how you're going to provide for this. I don't know how this is going to work out. But God, I'm going to remove my desires. And God, my desire is whatever you want to do. That's what I'm good for. Whatever you want to do, that's what I want to pursue. You see, our dependence is derailed by misplaced desires. The second thing I think that we miss dependence upon God is through failed expectations. Failed expectations, misplaced desires, and failed expectations. Remember, the difference between our desires and expectations is most clear when what we hope for doesn't happen. And so, said another way, unfulfilled desires, well, what happens when our desires aren't fulfilled? Well, number one, they result, unfulfilled desires result in disappointment. We say, well, you know what, I I didn't get what I wanted. I'm disappointed. Right? We we have something that we desire. We go to get it. We say, hey, you know, I'd I'd like this. And we're disappointed because we desired it, but it didn't happen. It's not the end of the world. It's just we didn't get it. But when we have unmet expectations, well, when expectations aren't met, well, that results in devastation. All of a sudden we say, oh my goodness, I, I mean, I expected this to happen. I expected this bonus to happen. Or I, I expected, you know, this person to respond this way. Or I expected God to do this. And when these expectations aren't met, then we have devastation. That's where people often get off the rail with God. 
is they have an expectation that God's going to do something in their life or for their life or through their life, and that doesn't happen, and all of a sudden God's to blame for it. How could you let something like this happen, God? Unmet expectations, right? And that's where people get derailed because God doesn't do what they think He should do. It's not that we just, we didn't just hope that it would happen. With expectations, we expected that it would happen because it was supposed to happen, right? Because I expected it to. So these failed expectations. In Genesis 29, Jacob, remember the father of the dust of, you know, as many as the dust of the earth, and I'm going to be with you wherever you go, this Jacob. Well, in, that was in 28 when chapter 29, Jacob uh, goes off, and as Jacob is journeying, Jacob meets Laban, and he meets his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And Jacob's desire became an expectation, right? So Jacob had these desires to elevate himself to number one. He deceived his brother, and now he's off to the races, running away from Esau. And then now, here it is in 29, he runs into Laban, and Laban's got a couple daughters. And so he has these desires that he would be number one, and then he turned his desires of being number one into an expectation that, listen to this, he imposed on other people around him. Wow, right? Have you ever done that? That we have these desires in our life that we want to happen, and then they become expectations, and then we start imposing expectations on everybody around us. That they'll do the things that we want them to do, and the things that we expect them to do, and no less. And so he expected Laban to do exactly what he wanted him to do. And that was, you'll give me Rachel to be my wife. His desire became an expectation, but that's not how things turned out. Jacob, the one who was accustomed to manipulating circumstances to get his way, was now the one being manipulated. You can read the story in chapter 29 of Genesis. And so Laban spent a good part of his life trying to figure all this out. I'm sorry, Jacob spent the good part of his life trying to figure all of this out. He finds himself on the other end of deceit. And instead of marrying Rachel, he marries Leah. He wanted to marry Rachel, but he was deceived, and he married Leah. And then eventually he marries both of them. So we read the story, and we say, well, at least he got what he wanted. To which I would say, to what expense? Right? You look around in the world today. People get, there's a lot of people who have what they want. What did it cost them? Right? What did it cost them? You know, when we think about the misplaced desires that we have that become expectations, what did it cost you to get what you wanted? Was it worth it? Right? The things that you think that God should do for you, the things that you think that God wants for you, and you start pursuing those on your own, was it worth it? What was the expense? What was the price that you paid to get what you thought you should have? In other words, what have we received on our terms through stress and anxiety that God had already promised to give us on His terms? What is it that we got through stress and anxiety that God had already promised to give us on His terms? In the book of Philippians, Paul writes this in verse 18. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need 
of yours according to his riches and glory. And then we have a song that says, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Right? That God can do that. Paul said, look, you know what? I'm a tent maker. You don't have to pay me. And God supplied all of his needs according to God's riches in glory. And so the question that we're answering is, what is it that I got in my life that I thought I deserved and that I pursued? And what did I pay to get that? What was the expense? Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power and work that's within us. So Paul says in another place then that God gives us far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And yet we pursue and we expect and then demand that we get things. To what expense? Can I suggest to you tonight that Jacob missed out on a lot of peace and joy along the way, and he still ended up with the same thing? Are we missing out on peace and joy, and in the end we still end up with the same thing? Are we pursuing the things that we want? Are we expecting things from God or demanding things from God that we desire? Instead of saying, God, I I want your peace and joy more than I want my expectations. You see, when our dependence lies within ourselves, God might grant us the things that we desire, but those desires may void the joy and peace that come with God's blessings. Don't sign me up for that. You see, things didn't end well for Jacob and Laban, and so then Jacob begins to run again, and so he's a runner. So he runs from Laban, and, which is Rachel and Leah's father, and he runs to meet Esau, the man that he deceived. And so on one side, he's got Laban, who he's tricked now, and he's got some of his cattle. And then on the other side, he has Esau, his brother that he tricked, and now Esau's coming to meet him. And so he doesn't know what this is going to look like. And so as we, we get towards the end here tonight, so in Genesis 32, the odds are not in his favor, okay? And so in 32, this is what the Bible says. The same night he arose, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that they had. So everybody went across. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, which most people believe this is God. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now here's Jacob. His entire life has been built on the fact that he doesn't want to be number two. He wants to be number one. And he's going to do everything that he has to in order to get God to do what he wants him to do. So here's Jacob. He's all by himself, and he wrestles with God. He's in this wrestling match with God. Have you ever been there before? Wrestling with God? Right? You have unmet expectations that you've put in place in your life. And those unmet expectations have caused you to a point to where now you feel all alone. Right? You've been there. 
you wrestle with God about the things that you don't understand, about the things that didn't go your way, about the things that you didn't get, right? You wrestle with God about those things. And and what God is doing here is God is showing Jacob that all of Jacob's life, he's depended on Jacob's strength to fight Jacob's battles. All Jacob's life, Jacob has depended on Jacob's strength to fight Jacob's battles. Jacob had never fully admitted his weakness before God or anyone else for that matter. Here's this younger son, the one who was to submit, the one who deceived his way into blessing, was now at the mercy of God. You see, God loved Jacob too much to leave him in his self-reliance. Can I suggest to you tonight that God loves you and God loves me way too much to leave me in my self-reliance? In verse 30, in chapter 32, God said to Jacob, he said, what is your name? Now, does he not know Jacob's name? He says, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but it shall be Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. For the first time in Jacob's life, in the lowest point, uh, in the lowest point of his life, with the broken hilt and all, Jacob declared, verse 30, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Look at all that Jacob went through. Look at all of the deception and trickery and planning and heartache and robbing of stress and anxiety and robbing of joy and peace that God had in store for him. And yet in his own way, in his misplaced desires and failed expectations, Jacob plotted his own course to get what he wanted and he refused to declare his dependence upon God. That he refused to operate in his weakness to be who God wanted him to be. And yet, Here he is at the mercy of God. He says, I have seen God face to face. You see, it's significant that Jacob's request for a blessing that the man said, which is God, that God asked, what is your name? You see, in the Old Testament, your name meant something. It was linked to your nature. And so Jacob's pattern of life Our pattern of life, self-reliance, self-dependence, has to change. Jacob's pattern of life had to be radically changed. And so in saying his name, what Jacob was doing is Jacob was revealing his nature. I'm getting chill bumps. Jacob was revealing his nature, okay? Here is Jacob, the heel catcher, being caught. And what Jacob had to do was he had to confess his true nature before God before he could be blessed. Listen, the way that you and I receive the blessings of God is that in honesty and transparency and admitting weakness that we admit our true nature, that I am a sinner before God. That I don't have all things figured out. That God is far more separated from me than I ever could imagine and yet he's closer to me today than he ever will be. 
right? That God loves me far more than I could ever imagine. And there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. That there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, despite the nature of sin that I inherited from Adam and Eve, and I have no ability to uh, operate in perfection. And yet, my name is sinner, yet God loves me. And God says to Jacob, tell me your name. Declare the reality that you are a heel catcher, that you're always second in line, that you'll never be good enough apart from the blessings of God. And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. My name is heel catcher. I'm the one that's always been in second place. I've been the one that's always tried to catch up. God, I wanted to mark my own path. I wanted to pave my own way, and I couldn't. And my whole life has been built on deception and facades and a house of cards. And I've wanted everyone to think that I was strong. And the reality is I'm not. Do you know what liberation it was for Jacob to finally declare in his life that he couldn't? For so many people, we show up to church and we say, we do the cognitive thing. We present, we present this image that we do have it all figured out, that we don't make mistakes, that everything is great in our life. And the reality is you're lying, that you are a heel catcher, that you're in second place, that you'll never be good enough. And the sooner that we get to the reality that we're all just a bunch of sinners serving an amazing God and that none of us have it figured out and we're all in second place and we're all heel catchers just like Jacob, the sooner that God can use us. But most people operate in the Jacob zone most of their life, if not all of their life, in a facade of misplaced desires and failed expectations. And they never declare the reality that their name is Jacob. Is it possible tonight that you need to say your name? That you need to declare your weakness before God, before he will move on your behalf? He said, what is your name? Throughout Jacob's entire life, he had been dragging God's blessings out from under all the circumstances of his life for his own use, under his own strength, depending on himself. He was too self-willed and too proud to let the blessing be given to him. But he changed his name to Israel, which means God fights. So now God said, no, your name is not Hillcatcher. I'm going to fight for you. And did you know God's still fighting for Israel? Right? That that tiny little nation, God's still fighting. You see, it is when we embrace our weakness that we are changed. It was when Jacob finally declared I'm a heel catcher, that he was radically changed. I don't know what that looks like for you. I, you know, I don't know what needs to be declared in your life to God. But I know that when we are weak, he is strong. That when we are honest about the fact that we can't depend upon ourselves, and that our only hope is in Jesus, that is when we are changed.
That's the only way Jacob was changed. That's the only way you and I are changed. It's when we embrace that weakness that we're changed. It's in that moment that where we see God face to face and we limp away stronger than ever before. That we limp away stronger than ever before. Remember, none of the Pharisees were disciples. What God is not asking you tonight is to be the best. He's not asking you to be the smartest. He's not asking you to be the best speaker, best memorizer of Scripture, best explainer of biblical terms. What He's asking you to do is to admit your name. That you are a sinner, that you don't have everything figured out, but there's a God in heaven who so desperately loves you that he slayed his own son on a Friday afternoon so that you and I could have a relationship with him. That he loves us so much that in spite of who we are, that he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. It's just when we confess that we stand before God. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, Romans 10, 9, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's in declaring the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we receive, the latter part of that verse, Romans 6, 23, the gift of God that gives eternal life. And that never changes. So for many of you in the room tonight, you're a believer. You've been saved for a long time. You've done that. You've declared your dependence upon God and God alone for salvation, that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? And so what you need to do is that we need to continue to exalt the name of Jesus and declare our dependence upon Him and that we don't have it all figured out and that we would be willing to fail, and that we would be willing to be vulnerable for the kingdom of God, and that we would try things that we weren't sure of, but that we knew who we could be sure of. Jesus, right? I'm not going to depend on my own. I'm just going to depend upon God. And so, God, whatever you may do, that's what I'm willing to do, because I'm depending upon you. And so we'll end where we started. What is it that we're asking God to do that unless he shows up, we will fail? What I'm asking you tonight to do is stretch yourself. That you would step outside the bounds of your self-confidence and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? As crazy as it sounded for Mary, she said, I'm in. As crazy as it sounded for the disciples as he called all of them, they said, I'm in. That's what self-reliance thrown away looks like, saying, God, I, I don't understand. It didn't make sense for the disciples to leave everything behind and follow Jesus, but they did it. Why? Because they depended upon the one who is dependable. Be okay with second place. God has a plan. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the example of Jacob. What an example this is. God, that you... In spite, you know, God, we would have given up on Jacob. All of the things that he kept hard-headed doing, pursuing his own interests, God, having these expectations and demands that you do these things, and yet you met him, God, at his lowest point when he was all alone, 
when he was unsure of, of who Esau would be to him or what Laban was doing in the midst of all of that, in the quietness of Jacob, you met him. And God, it was in his declaration that apart from you, he is nothing, that you stepped in and you changed his name and you said, I will fight for you. God, thank you that you fight for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have secured the victory over the enemy, that you have granted us eternal life, to have a relationship with you. God, help us not to be self-reliant. God, help us to be aware of our weaknesses and to lean into those, to be vulnerable for you so that you would be more glorified in all that we do. For your honor and for your glory, in your name we pray tonight. Amen. Amen. Have a great night.